Good morning, and uh, welcome to Hope Community Church. I am Pastor Trevor. Glad you could be here with us on this beautiful, rainy, wet spring day. Some of you might remember uh, Daryl Kyle. He used to be a pitcher for the St. Louis Cardinals. He was uh, 33, and he was six foot five, and he was considered healthy. But he passed away uh, June 22, 2002. Despite passing a uh, physical that cleared him to be in excellent health, he actually had a, a coronary artery that was about 90% blocked, and he suffered a massive heart attack. So while he appeared to be healthy, his heart was actually diseased, and ultimately it killed him. Well, today Jesus is going to be teaching us that a person's appearance and behavior can be misleading. The Pharisees, for example, they looked impressive, but their hearts were far from God. So we're going to be looking at some questions today, and they're going to be, we're going to be asking questions like, what is more important to God? Our observance of tradition or obedience to Scripture? What constitutes true worship? Is it what we practice and observe outwardly, or is it the attitude of the heart? Is it possible to separate the two, or does one impact the other? Must we be concerned about the strict observance of traditions to ensure that our hearts are pure before God? So these are the questions that we're going to be answering in our text today. And our text today is Matthew chapter 15, verses 1 through 20. Uh, It will be on the wall behind me, and we do have uh, Bibles uh, throughout the seats around you. Uh, But before we read the text, let's go ahead to the Lord in prayer. Father, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for your grace for us to get up and to gather together to praise your name, to glorify it, and to humbly submit ourselves before your instruction. May your spirit speak to us. May we hear what we need to hear. May we respond appropriately. May we desire your desires and seek to glorify you in all that we do, Father, even at great cost and great risk. Let us be willing to sacrifice our desires, Father, to see your will be done, to see your kingdom come. We ask these things, Father, for your glory, by the power of the Spirit, in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. So we're going to read all 20 verses. This is again Matthew 15, 1 through 20. Then Pharisees and scribes came to Jesus from Jerusalem and said, Why do you disciples break the tradition of the elders? For they do not wash their hands when they eat. Jesus answered them, And why do you break the commandment of God for the sake of tradition? For God commanded, Honor your father and your mother, and whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say, If anyone tells his father or his mother, What you would have gained from me is given to God, he need not honor his father. So for the sake of your tradition, you have made void the word of God. You hypocrites! Well did Isaiah prophesy of you when he said, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. And he called the people to him and said to them, Hear and understand. It is not what goes into the mouth that defiles a person, but what comes out of the mouth. This defiles a person. Then the disciples came and said to him, Do you know that the Pharisees were offended when they heard this saying? He answered, Every plant that my heavenly Father has not planted will be rooted up. Let them alone. They are blind guides. And if the blind lead the blind, both will fall into a pit. 
But Peter said to him, explain this parable to us. And Jesus said, are you also still without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into the mouth passes into the stomach and is expelled? But what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart, and this defiles a person. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. These are what defile a person. But to eat with unwashed hands does not defile anyone. We will break this text up into three sections. sections uh, first, verse 1 through 6, 7 through 9, and then we'll uh, last, uh, finish up the last section of verses 10 through 20. So in this uh, first section, verses 1 through 6, we deal with the issue of traditional scripture. See, we have these Pharisees that, that come to Jesus, and these just aren't any Pharisees. Right? These aren't the local Pharisees that have been hounding Jesus lately. These are Pharisees from Jerusalem. Right? Matthew includes that detail. That's important. These are Pharisees from Jerusalem. And they accuse the disciples of breaking the tradition of the elders. And this tradition has to deal with the ritual washing of the hands before they eat. So this is a man-made uh, expectation of washing hands. In fact, in the mission, in the mission now, there's an entire chapter dedicated to ritual cleansings uh, that the Jews were called to observe. And this is one of those cleansings. So this is a significant accusation. It deals with one of the three key areas of Jewish culture that the Jews were called to observe. And those three areas, if you remember, we talked about them in uh, chapter 12, where they're dietary, which we're dealing with here, the cleansing of the hands before eating. Sabbath keeping, which was the issue of uh, chapter 12, and then circumcision. And Jesus responds to this accusation, and in doing so, he doesn't deny the accusation. He's not even dealing with it. He's not trying to uh, justify or excuse his disciples. Rather, he counters with a greater accusation against them, the Pharisees from Jerusalem. He accuses them of breaking the fifth commandment. And if you remember the fifth commandment, that's to Honor your father and your mother. And he says, you break it for the sake of tradition. See, these Pharisees, they had created a tradition to provide an escape for those who could not honor, for those who uh, could not keep this commandment. And this, what this law that Jesus is citing here, it's called a Corbin law. And this was a law that allowed the, the child, when, when a parent came to their children and said, hey, we're in need, we need whether it's money, we need food, whatever, the, ch- the children could say, well, we're going to dedicate it to the temple. We're going to dedicate it to God. And that was allowed by this law. And thus, that money, that material, that food, when that child passed away at the time of death, whatever they dedicated to the temple would then be given to the temple, given to God. But yet, at the same time, if that child needed that money, needed that food for their own purpose, for their own use, they could do that. So they could make the dedication to the temple and to God, but at the same time, if they really needed it, they themselves could use it, but allow them not, not having to provide it to the parents. And so ultimately, what was initially created to help people not break the law of God was abused and became the instrument of law breaking. Because now these children, they're just not honoring the parents. They're, they're not even honoring God at this point. And what this tradition probably came out of, my guess, is that there are some parents who abuse the fifth commandment. Because notice what Jesus tells us, and when you read the fifth commandment, it says, whoever 
does not honor the father or mother must surely die, right? That's the consequence. So some parents in need of financial uh, support or uh, food or whatever might have gone to their kids who also were in poverty themselves and probably used the fifth commandment to pressure them into providing for them even when they really couldn't. So perhaps, and then this is just my guess, is probably what the tradition was born out of was to prevent the misuse of the fifth commandment against the people of God. But over time, the tradition was never kept in check. And over time, the tables were reversed and it became misused and it started nullifying the word of God. This is what happens when tradition is given more weight, more authority than what God teaches. See, traditions ultimately should enhance our understanding of Scripture and they should protect the people of God from... um, from misuse and from heresies and from people twisting scripture for their own purposes and from exploitation, but should never undermine scripture. So when we think of traditions that perhaps we have encountered or that we know of, let's run through some and ask us, let's think about them. I think a good example of traditions that enhance our understanding of scripture are creeds. Creeds are are great. They're useful for teaching and edifying concisely what is taught in Scripture. Example, the Apostolic Creed. When we read the Apostolic Creed, it covers a a wealth of Scripture, a wealth of theology, very concisely. And you should be able to look at that creed and point to Scriptures as to where it goes. If you can't, you probably shouldn't be using it. Creeds also are useful for creating unity and camaraderie. The military knows this. Every military branch has a creed or a song. And any veteran of that branch, if they hear the song or the creed, would probably stand up and recite it or sing it with their fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. Even those who go to ranger school, before they are rangers, they have to know and recite the ranger creed on the spot as they're going through the school. It's an expectation that if you're going to become a ranger, you need to know the ranger creed. Because creeds help us exhibit our values as well as our shared experiences. So they have value, but at the same time, creeds, especially within the church, never are meant to override the weight and the authority of Scripture. If they add to Scripture, if they change Scripture, if they contradict Scripture, they should not be used. Reciting the Lord's Prayer, that's another tradition. It's useful for teaching. It can even enhance the worship experience. When, when you recite the Lord's Prayer together out loud, there, there, there's a, an experience there that, that's of value. But if it becomes a must-do, or if it becomes a magical key to God's bag of blessings, then it becomes an idol, and that goes against Scripture, and that's not the purpose of the Lord's Prayer. Altar calls, popular tradition of the 20th century, and many churches still hold on to them. Why? What, what's the purpose? Do churches have to do altar calls? Do we, is that something that is rooted in Scripture, or is that something that we just do because that's what we do? What happens when a pastor or a church doesn't want to do an altar call? I can remember I candidated for a church one time. It was a Baptist church, and they were expecting altar calls at the end of the service. And I, that's, I'm not, as you can probably tell by now, I'm not altar call kind of a guy. Reciting the sinner's prayer. Where did that tradition come from? No one has ever been saved by saying the sinner's prayer. You might have said it at the time you were saved, but the prayer itself did not save you. 
The only thing that has saved you is the same thing that has saved me and saved every other Christian since Jesus Christ died on the cross. And it's belief in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ for our sins. Sinner's prayer is not found in Scripture. And the church went about 1,900 years without the sinner's prayer. So do we need it? Why do we use it? What's the purpose behind it? And is it okay to be saved without it? I think scripturally, I think that's a, a clear yes. But at the same time, the sinner's prayer in itself isn't evil. It's, it's how we use it that matters. Communion and baptism. How often? Why? Do we use one cup and share it? Do we use the multiple cups that we do? Do we use juice? Do we use wine? Why? Monthly, weekly, baptism. Scripture's kind of clear on that. You repent, you become saved. As a believer, you get baptized. That's pretty straightforward. But how you get baptized should it be immersed? Flowing water, warm water, cold water, sprinkled? If you get sprinkled, is it three times? So we have to ask those questions. Order of service. We, you might not think much of the order of service, but if you just study churches, especially in America, throughout the denominations and, and just regionally, so churches do the order of service differently. And it's usually born out of tradition and, and, and not scripture. Does it make it wrong? Does the sermon come first? Is there a benediction at the end? Passing the plate. We don't pass the plate here. Many churches pass the plate. Announcements. Do we do announcements? Do we do them at the beginning of the service? At the end of the service? The times of the service. This is a big one, right? Has to be on Sunday morning. And oh, Sunday evening too. And if you don't do church on Wednesday evening, are you really a church? Where in scripture does it say that? What about Saturday, Saturday evening? When churches started doing services on Saturday evening, people were like, oh, they're pagan churches. They're worshiping on Saturday evening. But where in Scripture? When in Acts, they gathered daily to worship. Well, what kind of services we do or how we do them, especially on specific holidays. Think about Christmas Eve service. Why do we do a Christmas Eve service? Where in Scripture does it say you must gather and, and, and talk about the birth of Christ on Christmas Eve, not on the day that we actually think, you know, we celebrate the birth, but the night before? Where, in, where is that? What about Easter? I mean, Easter and Christmas, ultimately, is something that we're supposed to celebrate every Sunday, right? But is it wrong to do that? No. But should we give it more weight than what Scripture tells us to? No, we shouldn't. Mother's Day, Father's Day, Good Friday, Monday, Thursday, we could go on. What about the pulpit? Is this a special thing here? Is there a power in the pulpit? Can the pulpit be glass? Can it be metal? Churches have had arguments over that. It should be wooden because it represents this, or it can't be glass because the pulpit, since it represents the word of God, you can see right through it, and there's no power in it. I mean, th- those, are, those are arguments that people have, but they're not found in Scripture. Maybe we don't have a pulpit. You have a table or nothing at all. What does the word of God say? Or do we lean more on tradition than the teaching of God? We can say the same about certain instruments for worship. You need to have an organ, a guitar, drums, a grand piano. What about an electric piano that can give you the sound of an organ? Does that count? The role of the pastor. What's my job? What's your expectations of the pastor? Is it born out of tradition and what you grew up with? Or is it born out of scripture and what God expects the pastor to do? The ministries a church should have. Youth, young adults, senior Bible study, why? 
Is it because it's, this is how it's always been done or because it's biblical? Now, you might be thinking some of this could be convicting to you or challenging to you, or you might be thinking a lot of those things I love and I don't want to let go of. And, and if that's the case, that's okay. Don't worry about that because that's normal. Because traditions, when we deal with traditions, we're ultimately dealing with identity, right? We're dealing with who we are. The dietary, the Sabbath keeping, the circumcision, um, observances that the Jews were called to observe, that was who they were. That was part of their identity. That's part of the reason why it was such a big deal. This wasn't some small accusation by the Pharisees. And this is the danger that exists with it dealing with our identity. I once used to minister to an area that had a lot of Norwegian descendants in there. And often in the response to teachings of scripture, they would say, you can't expect me to do that. I'm Norwegian, as if that is an excuse. But we can also say things like, well, we're Baptists. We're the free church. Um, We've just never done that here before. It's doing the same thing. We're trying to justify tradition over the teaching of scripture because to give up part of who we are, it's not easy. It's hard. This is why Jesus doesn't mince his words when he says, die to self, deny yourself and take up your cross. It's meant to cost something. It's going to cost all of you. This is the biggest critique of the sinner's prayer and altar calls. Coming to Jesus Christ is not a momentary, it's not something brief that you just come up and you say a five-second prayer and you're saved. It's a lifelong decision. It's a commitment. It's a sacrifice. I mean, you're literally bringing, this is where altar calls come from, you're bringing yourself to the altar and killing yourself before God to give him your life. That's what's supposed to be happening. So it is, it's a hard thing to do. This is the same response when we say we've never done it that way or we're Baptist or the free church. It's the same response that the rich man gave Jesus when he was unable to do what Jesus asked him. It was too hard for him, so he walked away. If you're born again, the church, the denomination, does not define you, right? The Son of Christ does. The kingdom does. And remember, the church and the kingdom are not one and the same. The church is an expression of the kingdom of God. So the church, who we are here, does not define who you are as a believer, Traditions are formed out of scripture to protect believers from heresy and false teaching while at the same time encouraging corporate unity. If these traditions, though, are left unchecked over time, they will unseat the very scripture they were created to protect. This is why the knowledge of scripture and rightly handling scripture, not, it's just not knowing scripture, but it's knowing scripture properly that is so important because without biblical literacy, our understanding of God and the church is driven by our forms and practices, our traditions, our culture, more so than the word of God. And it's an easy thing to do because often traditions and all that, we see those plastered everywhere and practiced much more than the word of God, whereas the word of God requires studying and devotion time. And, and we have, actually have to give time and effort to the word of God more so than the traditions. And this is why many people, unfortunately today, especially I think in America, practice the false worship that Jesus describes in our next section, in verses 7 through 9. And with these verses, Jesus, he doesn't mess around here. 
He gets straight to the point. He calls it as he sees it, and he calls these Pharisees from Jerusalem, the religious elite, the teachers of the teachers, he calls them hypocrites. This is like our national office of the E-Free Church. He calls them hypocrites, and he quotes Isaiah 29, 13, which clearly these Pharisees would be very familiar with. And he says, they honor them with his lips, with their lips, but their hearts are far from God. They praise God. They sing praises. They speak well of him. They say the right things, but yet because their hearts are far from God, they worship in vain. They go to the temple. They recite the Psalms. They tithe. They offer sacrifices faithfully. They even know their scripture, yet it's all in vain. None of it ultimately matters because of where the heart is. They embrace the teachings of men as doctrine, like this example of breaking the fifth commandment. The Corbin law, they embrace much more so than the fifth commandment. And these teachings of men, they, they're called doctrine because they carry an authoritative weight that overrides the teachings of God, making the word of God a null and void. They prefer their own understanding of God in light of their culture and world rather than the truth of God taught by God himself. That's not too different from today. We have churches that are filled with people who profess Christ, but yet their hearts are far from God. They sing about him. They sing to him. They speak well of him. They speak the Christian lingo, but their worship is in vain because their hearts aren't near. And why is that? Because they embrace, and they embrace the teachings of men, the teachings of the men that undermine Scripture. They love to have their ears tickled with great music, motivating sermons that may or may not quote Scripture, or they use one verse to start it out and they never go back to it. Sermons about how to live your best life now. They care more about how a song or a sermon makes them feel rather than if Christ is glorified. They look for churches who, that cater to their needs rather than looking for churches where they can meet a need. They go to church to have their feet washed, but not to wash other people's feet. In other words, they go to be served and not to serve, which if you read scripture, the purpose of the church is to serve one another. And they constantly find ways to accommodate the needs and sensitivities of culture by compromising the teachings of Scripture, such as accepting the homosexual lifestyle as okay, teaching that God has an unconditional love, not just that you can come as you are, but you can stay as you are. And that's not in Scripture. Or most recently, with the passing of the uh, uh, abortion law in Alabama, the taking of innocent life is acceptable in some situations that the value or the worth of a person is not rooted in the imago Dei or the image of God that they bear, but the value of a person is, is, is rooted in the circumstance in which they were conceived or the economic situation that they were born into. There are people who proclaim to be Christians who, because the Alabama law not making exceptions, I understand it's a hard thing, Life's a hard, messy thing. I get that. But they think that it's okay to take innocent life because somebody was conceived in the situation of rape or because if they're born, they'll be born into a life of poverty. Ultimately saying that human life, that personhood, is being rooted in their circumstance or their economic situation. Scripturally speaking, that does not fly. Personhood, who we are, the worth of our life is rooted in the fact that we bear the image of God at the moment of conception. Scripture is clear on that. Not a popular teaching. 
And so this passing Alabama law has shown how many professing Christians truly do not know what they claim to believe. Some of these churches, they practice, they, they teach private revelation that God can speak to you outside of the bounds of Scripture, which ultimately rob the authority of Scripture. They teach that true faith is some secret experience that only a select few can, can have, can, can, ex, can experience. And you can only experience it if you open up your minds big enough to a God who is not limited to Scripture or to a God that turns a blind eye to open and willful sin. If a particular teaching of God is too hard or too, it's hard for us to understand or feels too burdensome, these are the people that give the text a new meaning or they find some kind of loophole to override it altogether, just like the Pharisees here did with the fifth commandment. It's too hard. It became too burdensome. So we'll find a way out of it and we'll try to honor God with it. But ultimately, they just end up breaking the commandment, the teachings of God, and their hearts far from him. So Jesus goes on and he gives a final answer to the Pharisees when he speaks to the crowd in the last part of our text, verses 10 through 20. And notice this, Jesus' answer, he calls the crowd to them. He, he goes to them. He's, he's opening up this conversation to everyone right in front of the Pharisees from Jerusalem, the big dogs. And he says, he tells them in verse 11, he says, Hear and understand, it is not what goes into the mouth that defiles a person, but what comes out of the mouth that this, this is what defiles a person. And in doing so, he offends the Pharisees. The disciples are like, you know what you just did? You just offended them. The Pharisees from Jerusalem, the guys that came all the way from Jerusalem to ask you about us, you offended them, and they left. And Jesus is like, leave them alone. Just leave them. They weren't planted by my father. Ultimately, they're going to be uprooted in the end anyway. See, Jesus, just, he shrugs it off. He's like, leave them. Let the blind lead the blind. And this, this planting language that Jesus is using, this should echo of something that we covered recently, the parable of the weeds, right? Jesus does his sowing, and the de- evil one comes and sows bad seed. This is a good practical example of this. See, Jesus wasn't worried about offending. He was more concerned about the truth being proclaimed. Those who teach false truths and are unrepented of them when they're confronted, they are to be left alone, for they are blind guides. See, it is dangerous to follow someone who is blind themselves. And Jesus here, though, is saying that those who follow the blind, they too are blind, because they don't recognize that the ones that are leading them are blind. And this is why we need to know Scripture. This is how it's, the, it's a light for our path. Is, is scripture illuminates how we should walk. The Holy Spirit dwelling within us opens up our eyes to the way we ought to go. And if, if we stay faithful to that, we stay faithful to the Scripture and submitting ourselves to the Holy Spirit, we will recognize a false teacher and we won't be led astray by them. But those who do not, ultimately those who do not want to, will continue to be led by blind people. I mean, there are many out there today in the church who are blind to the teachings of Jesus. Yet they are on the bestsellers list. You can find them in popular bookstores. You can find them at big conferences. And this is because biblical illiteracy is rampant in the church today. In a society where most people can read to some basic level, being able to read scripture, in a society where Bibles are found everywhere, 
people don't know it. They don't know it. But they know the bestseller books more. They know what people teach. They know Jesus calling more. They know, uh, just pick a popular book about how to live your best life now. That's one, right? They, they know that more than they know Scripture. And these people, because of that, they worship in vain. And this, this should not surprise us, though. George Whitfield, um, he wrote in one of his sermons, he says, As God can send a nation or people no greater blessing than to give them faithful, sincere, and upright ministers. So the greatest curse that God can possibly send upon a people in this world is to give them over to blind, unregenerate, cardinal, lukewarm, and unskilled guides. We often worry about persecution coming to the church or religious liberty being infringed upon and hurting the church. That's not the concern of the church. It's never been the concern of the church. What's going to hurt this church, and I think what has hurt the church of America, is false teaching. It's the yeast of the Pharisees. It has come in, and it has infected the entire church of Christ in America. We have false teaching everywhere, and it's because we don't want to read Scripture, or we don't want to accept what's taught in Scripture. And I think part of the church in America, I think God is judging the church by giving us blind guides, because that's what we want. Paul in 2 Thessalonians uh, Chapter 2, verse 11 through 12, talks about this happening at the end of days. He says, Therefore God sends them a strong delusion, so that they may believe what is false, in order that all may be condemned who did not believe the truth, but had pleasure and unrighteousness. What we desire, God will give us ultimately. This is Romans 1. Over time, as people continue to suppress the truth, and you suppress the truth not because you don't know it. You suppress the truth because you know it's the truth. You can't suppress something you don't know, right? Over time, as they continue to suppress the truth, God gives them over to their darkness, to their desires. And what the people want are people who are going to tickle their ears. And I think we see this. We see see this being played out in 1 Kings 22. Read that. It's an interesting uh, event that happens with a, fall, with a bunch of false prophets in Micaiah, the one true prophet in that incident. Therefore, we must strive to grow daily in the truth of God, in his word. So Peter, he hears this and he wants an explanation from Jesus. And, and it's either because he doesn't understand or it could be he wanted simply to confirm what he heard rightly. Because this isn't a small thing that Jesus has done. He's completely dismissed the Pharisees from Jerusalem, the leaders of the day. And Jesus, of course, you know, he expresses some frustration with, with Peter. And he goes on and explains that what goes in the mouth, it never touches the heart. It just goes on, we expel it, it goes on into the sewer, passes right through. But what comes out of the mouth, that's what proceeds from the heart. And he tells us evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual morality, theft, false witness, slander. This is what defiles a person. It's not eating with unwashed hands. Now, clearly, this ritual of hand washing does not apply to us, as Jesus made clear, but the principle being taught here does. See, observing ceremonial rituals and traditions, they're not the litmus test for the cleanliness of one's heart before God. Daryl Kyle passed a physical exam. He was considered, he had a bill of clean health, but his artery was 90% blocked to his heart. And his heart was diseased. That's what killed him. 
There are many who faithfully attend and serve the church today, yet they speak abusively towards others. They speak slanderously towards others. And they do so without repentance. Or they engage in acts that go clearly against the scripture of God. They engage in sexual immorality, and they don't repent of it. And this is not the gospel. This is not even being close to God. There's no gospel that teaches that you can believe in Christ and live as you want. So we must avoid false worship that's rooted in the teachings of men absent of God's word, thinking that our acts, our clean hands, our outward appearances is what makes us right before the Almighty, or, whatever, or however we do church, or whether we have a pulpit, or whatever it may be. So you might be asking, well, what then is true worship? What does it look like to have a pure and undefiled heart before God? I have a quote from J.C. Ryle uh, from his commentary on the Gospel of Matthew. Now, the, or the, his quote is in yellow, and I added Bible verses because I wasn't just going to pull a quote if it wasn't biblical. And, and I think Ryle's quote, as you hear it, it sounds very biblical, so it was very easy to find the verses to show that, hey, this is biblical. And I also want to model for you, when you read something like this, you should be able to link it with Scripture. I'm not going to read the verses. I'll just read the quote. What is the first thing we need in order to be Christians? A new heart. What is the sacrifice God asks us to bring to him? A broken and contrite heart. What is the true circumcision? The circumcision of the heart. What is genuine obedience? To obey from the heart. What is saving faith? To believe with the heart. Where ought Christ to dwell? To dwell in our hearts by faith. What is the chief request that wisdom, that's Proverbs, makes to everyone? My son, give me thine heart. Notice how scripture, all of scripture points to our heart and giving it to God. That's worship. That's regeneration. That's what it looks like to worship God truly is our heart, not what we do. We can do things to help us demonstrate that, but what we do doesn't necessarily reflect a healthy heart. Does it mean that we shouldn't wash our hands? Many of you would probably agree with that, especially after we use the bathroom. Nor does it mean that we should ignore traditions or ceremonial rituals but we shouldn't give them more weight than they deserve. They are but sand, and we hold them loosely in our hands, recognizing how fleeting and how powerless traditions are absent of God's truth and spirit. But what does matter is this. Does he have our hearts? Do my speech, my actions reflect that truth, or do I defile my heart with my actions and with my words? And you might be wondering, well, this quote is great, and I understand this. But I do my Bible reading, I obey, I study, I believe my speech to be wholesome. But how can I know, how can I really know that I am doing all of this and it's not being done in vain or it's not being done for self-glory or that I myself have been given over to the darkness of my own delusion? What does this quote from J.C. Ryle, what does this really look like? And that's a, that's a great question and hopefully I'll, I'll be able to answer it for you. In the moments of temptation, when you're alone, when no one is around, and no one's going to know but God, do you give in or do you fight and strive to endure? Paul in Romans 5.3.5 says, I just added this morning, so it's not up there. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance. Endurance produces character. Character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame. Because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. 
when we endure through temptation by the power of the Spirit, we see our character for what it truly is. When you're there by yourself in temptation, whatever it may be, if it's regard to how you spend money, what you eat, where your thoughts are going, where they lead you, the sinful ones, what you do on your own there in that moment, whether you fight and endure or don't, that reflects your character. And so when you endure, you're given, you see that your character, that, hey, I'm born again. Because sin did not win this time. Because I have the power of the Spirit in me. I'm born again. I'm redeemed. And ultimately, that gives us hope. But if we fail, and if it happens from time to time, you might be wondering, well, what does that say about my character? If you fail from time to time, and you put up a fight, and and you still fail, but if your heart's broken, that's a good sign. Right? That's what God wants, a broken and contrite heart. Those who mourn over their sin. And then we just keep going. This is why we need the gospel daily, being reminded that we're not justified by our works. We're justified purely by the blood of Christ. And that we can't mess it up, even when we stumble. But the issue becomes then, if you're regularly succumbing to temptation in these moments, in your private times, in your closets, your personal closets, whatever they may be, if you're willfully entering into temptation, chasing after it, if you're willfully engaging in sin, and you're not mourning, you're not losing sleep over it, your heart's not near, near to God. It's nowhere close to God. You can read scripture all you want. Your heart's not near to God. Until you mourn over the brokenness of your sin and of your nature, your heart will never be near to God. So when we look at things within the church, another way of looking at this is if we were to take this pulpit, put it in the dumpster, use it for firewood, or even the grand piano, which is really nice. That'd be really a shame. But if, if, we, if we took things away, if we took the chairs and made you stand, maybe put in pews, got rid of the drums, whatever tradition or whatever thing that we do in church that you love, maybe it's the library, maybe it's the nursery, maybe it's the snacks in the back, right? Maybe just come here to eat. But whatever it is that you really enjoy about church, if that was taken away, how would you respond and I'm, and I'm talking about like things that aren't taught in Scripture. Clearly, if we took the Bible away, yeah, that's something that you want to get worked up over, right? You, we want to, if the Word of God stops being proclaimed here, that's an issue. But I'm talking about these periphery things, these traditions, even how we do communion. If we change communion up, or how we do baptism, whatever it is, how you respond in that moment can be an indication of where your heart is, or where you're putting more value in. Do you stay with that church or do you pack up and go and find another church that can wash your feet because you don't want to wash other people's feet? That's another test, another thing to ponder, to know if your heart is near to God. What is more important to you, his will or yours? And none of these moments are easy, right? They're not. When you're struggling with that temptation, especially when you're conditioned to it, maybe it's an addiction, it's hard to go to him. But they draw us to him, and he gives us these moments. One, to test us so that we know where we stand before him and to give us that confidence, and also uh, so that we can have that intimacy with him because they are intimate moments. These are the moments where we weep our tears over our sin and over the grace that he has lavished upon us. And when we go through these moments and we grow, then we can serve him faithfully, 
we can serve him with confidence, knowing where we stand before him, knowing that we are regenerated, knowing that our character is what the Bible tells us it should be for a believer, and we can proclaim his news, his good news, boldly in a culture and a society that wants nothing to do with it. And we know that regardless of how we might do church, and regardless if we observe certain traditions or not, our hearts are near to God, and we are not worshiping in vain. And none of this is possible without the gospel. None of it. This moment of intimacy with the Father is only possible by the blood of Christ. It's not possible by tradition. It's not possible by observing some man-made teaching. It's the blood of Christ that frees us from the bondage of sin, and it also frees us from the teachings of men. We're not marked by the observance of traditions, but by having our hearts that are near to God. That's what marks us out to be his sons and daughters. Let us pray. Father, thank you for your word. I ask that you will search our hearts, search our souls, that the Spirit will help us know our idols. Help us let go of the traditions. Help us embrace the ones that help us walk closer to you and help us shun the ones that keep us far from you. Help us be bold in those private moments, especially in this day and age with the internet, social media, um, just, and just being able to live away from one another, not really being doing life like uh, we really should be called to be doing, Father. Just help us be faithful to you in those moments. Help us go on our faces before you, to have that power of the Spirit dwell within us, have us to be uh, resistant to the temptation, help us to be, um, help our hearts to come to you, Father, open them up, expose them for what they are, uh, for the evil that exists within them, the selfishness, the pride that exists within, Father, in all areas of our life, every area, our speech, what we listen to, uh, what we watch, what we, what we talk about, uh, just help us, Make you the priority. Help us seek the kingdom first in everything, Father. Help us be wise in, in what we practice and, and what we value at church. Help us as a church, Father, be faithful to your text. Help us know your word appropriately, Father, and where we have gone wrong, Father, where we have been gone astray or not understand your scripture right, Father. Forgive us and make that plain to us and help us repent of that false teaching. Help us uh, recognize that, you know, we're not perfect and, and that we will continue to grow in your truth and we will continue to desire that it be proclaimed, Father, and that we will respond appropriately, recognizing that we are secure in, in, in your grace and in the blood of your Son um, and that we shouldn't uh, be afraid to share our brokenness or our faults, Father. And in fact, because of our hearts being near to you, we can do that, Father. Give us that confidence. Give us that peace. It's hard these days, Father. There's so much animosity and hostility to really stand up for what is true, to even ascribe to the fact that truth exists. And there's a lot of confusion out there. Calm that confusion. Help us be anchored in your word and in your truth and in your spirit. Call us to you daily. Help us start the day with you, Father. Help us end the day with you. Help us walk with you in prayer continually throughout the day. Help us not allow our thoughts to wander, but help us keep our thoughts trained on you and, and how we are to love our neighbors. 
to glorify you. Help us have a spirit of self-control in all things, not just to restrain from certain things, Father, but so that we can engage in the activities that we need to engage in to learn from you, to learn from your word and from one another. Give us that spirit to dwell richly in your son and in his word and in the spirit and as one body, Father, that we can glorify you as one body here at Hope so that your glory can be uh, witnessed to uh, here in West Salem and that hope can be a a beacon of hope uh, for those who are lost in the dark, Father. We recognize you will build your kingdom through your son. Help us be part of that. It won't be our traditions that win people. It won't be any creed that we cite. It won't even be the words from our lips, but it would be purely your spirit, your grace, your truth, and the blood of your son, Jesus Christ, that will win people, and your word being proclaimed. Help us be faithful to that, and let your work be done, Father. We ask these things, Father, for your glory, by the power of the Holy Spirit, in the name of your son, Jesus Christ. Amen.